they, uh, did you announce the service times change? Okay, yeah. So starting next week, uh, our service times are, are going to go back to 9 and 10.30. So before we came back into the building for uh, this fall for COVID, we left the early morning time slot open in case we needed a third service. Um, so we aren't going to need that. We're just going to go 9 and 10.30 starting next week, okay? I know there's some confusion about that, so I'm going to say it one more time. Next week, 9 and 10.30, okay? Easter Sunday, we're excited to celebrate Easter together. Oh, man, it's doing it again. So Ian wasn't here this morning. Ian's not feeling well. And we give Ian kind of a tough time occasionally. We, we joke around about Ian a lot. And uh, speaking of Ian, my tech isn't working again. But, um, and it was working before service. I had it all set up, came up here. It's not working. Great. Um, you, really, you really appreciate somebody a little more when they're not here and all the work that they do. Ian does a lot of good work, and uh, we missed him. <laughs> so I'm very kind of frazzled, running all over the place, trying to get everything in order. Um, so Tate, you're going to have to follow along with me, man, as I'm going. I'll try to give you cues because um, it's not communicating. They're not talking together. Speaking of prayer, our attack is not communicating. Jay, you'd appreciate that, Jay. All right, so our campaign is called Pray Like Jesus. So the idea here is incredibly simple. It's uh, prayer can often be intimidating. It can be uh, this thing that we feel like we have to do perfectly because we're talking to the God of the universe, right? Uh, our basic definition of prayer is communication with God. So it can be an intimidating thing to feel like I don't know what to say. I don't know how to pray. Different traditions have different prayers I'm supposed to pray. What posture am I supposed to pray in? How much time should I spend in prayer? How much time should I not spend in prayer? It's this big kind of thing that people tend to stress out about as Christians. So what we're doing is just looking at the life of Jesus and saying, how did Jesus pray? Okay, like the old WWJD bracelets, what would Jesus do? Uh, how would Jesus pray? And let's pray like Jesus, because he is the author and perfecter of our faith. And so we should model as much as we can our life, prayer life, after his. So we've been looking at this for a few weeks now. We, we saw uh, that Jesus, first, his prayer life didn't begin with him praying, but the Father communicating to him who he is, that he is his son, he is loved, and with him he is pleased. And how important it is for us that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus and we believe in him, to rest in that identity. So we are communicating to God as our father, okay? And we are his child. So we need to remember that when we go to God in prayer. And then we talked about solitude, how Jesus had this regular habit of solitude. He would seek it out. The more intense his life got, the, the bigger the moment, the more he would seek solitude, to be alone with the Father and pray, and how important that is for our lives. And then last week, John talked about the Lord's Prayer, which models for us how we should pray, gives us kind of a paradigm for what our prayer should look like and what we should say in prayer. Okay, today... Uh, is Palm Sunday, by the way. I know that. So I don't know what we're supposed to say. Happy Palm Sunday. I don't think we say that. But today is the day in the Christian calendar that marks the beginning of Holy Week. 
So we're going to, this is the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, knowing full well what he was walking into, knowing that he was going to his death, and his death being a crucifixion on a Roman cross, which was excruciating and uh, shameful. To the Jews, they thought it was a curse. But Jesus rode in anyways, and he rides in like, uh, like a king where they're laying palm branches before him, but he's riding on a donkey. It's this beautiful scene. Uh, we're actually not going to spend time there today. We're going to fast forward a little bit in Holy Week to Thursday, okay? And we're going to continue our theme of praying like Jesus. And what we see on Thursday in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is after Jesus has the Passover meal with his disciples, this intimate moment. He spends a lot of time praying, a lot of time talking with them. They sing a hymn, and then they leave the city, and they walk out of the city because the city during Passover week would have been crazy busy. Tons of people from all over the world would have been in Jerusalem. And so Jesus and his disciples, they don't stay in the city. They go to a place where they often stayed, and it is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's just outside the city. And Jesus and his disciples go out there for the night. And Judas knows this because Judas betrays Jesus and he knows where Jesus is. So what we're going to see is this theme throughout this whole story of Jesus not running from the will of the Father, which we will come to later today in our in our talk as we're going through the Lord's Prayer. So, Tate, why don't you follow with me here, man? We're going we're gonna to read through this, beginning here, Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. So this is after they left the city. They walked out there. They sang a hymn together. Jesus has this conversation with his disciples where he tells them, you guys are all going to abandon me. Uh, you're going to desert me. You're going to leave me. And then he tells Peter, Peter, you are going to disown me three times before... Uh, the night is up. And of course, that comes to pass. But here in the garden, it says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So Luke says there, he goes about a stone's throw away. So here again, while Jesus is going into Jerusalem, walking to the cross, he seeks out solitude for prayer, for time alone with the Father. And he takes his three closest disciples. So Peter, James, and John were kind of like the inner circle of his 12. So he has 12 disciples. He leaves them, and then he goes with Peter, James, and John to pray, and then he even leaves them, okay? So Jesus is seeking out and craving solitude. And it says he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Okay, those words there in the Greek, they mean, they mean sorrowful and troubled, okay? Jesus was incredibly sad, and his disciples see this in his demeanor. It's not solely what he says, but they see it. He's grieving. He's troubled. The word means to be in anxiety, to be distressed, okay? They see it in his demeanor. And if you've watched The Passion of the Christ or any of The, uh, the Chosen, any of those, right? You've, you've seen, you have pictures running through your head of the sorrow and trouble and the anxiety and the stress that Jesus is facing in this moment. Okay, we're on to the next one. Verse 38. 
Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He's telling them to stay alert, stay awake, to pray with him. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. That posture of lying with your face to the ground symbolizes submission to the Father. He lies with his face to the ground and he begins praying. Now, I've often wondered uh, if there isn't evidence of the resurrection, uh, th- this is it. This is part of it. How did they know what he was praying? Okay, these guys fell asleep, which we're going to see soon. They know what he was praying because after the resurrection, Jesus told them. That's the only explanation that makes any sense. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My Father. Okay, first of all, Jesus is modeling for us how to pray, right? Remember the Lord's Prayer? He taught us to pray, Our Father in heaven. Jesus is doing that. That's how he prays. My Father, he says, If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but... As you will. Okay, again, modeling our prayer life after Jesus, this is vital. Don't miss this. This is so important for how we are to pray. First of all, just unpacking it to understand it a little bit. The cup metaphor, it's a metaphor we don't use often today, but especially in biblical times and in apocalyptic literature, the cup metaphor is one for wrathful judgment from God that usually involves suffering and pain. Okay? We don't talk about this a lot in in church for good reason, because it's kind of uncomfortable, right? But when you read through the Old Testament, when you read through Revelation, even in the Gospels, it's mentioned a few times, this, this cup metaphor, it refers to God's wrath and his judgment. Revelation 14, 10, it says this, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. Isaiah 51, 17 says, Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Okay, so it's this language that Jesus is picking up. That if there's any way that God's wrathful judgment could not be poured out on him, which is what happens at the cross and we'll talk about on Friday of this week, if there's any way for that For him to not drink that cup, he's praying if there's any possible way out. What he's saying is, I know that's door number one, what awaits me. God, if there's a door number two, I'd like to take that one, if possible. But then, even though Jesus is facing unbearable physical pain, at a Roman cross. Unimaginable spiritual suffering carrying the weight of sin of the entire human race upon his shoulders. Even though he is facing that type of suffering, he still prays, yet not as I will, but as you will. He still submits to the will of the Father. And again, today being Palm Sunday, we remember that Jesus rides into Jerusalem after telling his disciples multiple times what suffering awaits him, that his death awaits him. Why did he go? (laughs) At any point in this narrative, Jesus could have 
been in the garden and said, you know what? I know they're coming from Jerusalem. I'm hightailing it out of here. I'm going north back to my home in Galilee. He could have run at any moment. He didn't have to ride into Jerusalem, but he did. And when we ask why, it's because he's in submission to the will of the Father. Going on to the next one, verse 40. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. He said, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, he says, but the flesh is weak. So he focuses in on Peter. Because just a few verses earlier, Peter said, even if everybody else abandons you, I will not. (laughs) Peter said, I will die for you, Jesus. And what we see in this narrative is the complete abandonment of Jesus on the part of his disciples, on the part of the people of Israel, on the part of everybody around him in his life. He's completely, utterly alone. And here he's asking for this small, minor comfort of knowing that his closest friends are praying for him and praying with him in this moment, and they fall asleep. He tells Peter, watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation, going back to what he said earlier, that he would disown him three times. That's probably what he's referring to here, is is Peter, pray. I just told you (laughs) that you're going to do this. Pray that you won't, (laughs) right? Pray that you won't fall into temptation and disown me. And then he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think that that line right there characterizes our struggle with prayer as much as anything. Everybody that I talk to says, I want to pray. It's not a matter of desire. Of course we want to pray. But our flesh is often weak. We're we're sleepy like these guys. (laughs) For how silly it sounds, we're sleepy. We have a hard time disciplining ourselves say no to the other things in our life and commit time to prayer. The spirit is willing. Our desire's there. But all too often our flesh is just weak. Going on. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Jesus repeats the same thing time and time again to the Father. Saying, God, if this cup can be taken from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Then he returned to the disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Judas comes leading a group of soldiers from from, the Sanhedrin to come and arrest Jesus. And these guys, again, the narrative we see throughout this story is constant abandonment, betrayal of Jesus to the point where Jesus is all alone. Three times, three times, emphasizing it, drawing more attention to it, making sure that we get that, okay, this wasn't just a mistake on the part of his disciples. They weren't just kind of sleepy and needed a reminder, and then Jesus reminds them, and then they're good. No, this was an utter betrayal. They 
fell asleep three times. They couldn't even stay awake and pray with him for an hour. They completely betrayed him. They completely left him, foreshadowing what Peter is about to do by denying Jesus three times. These guys totally failed to grasp the magnitude of the moment of what Jesus was facing. Even though Jesus was, is sorrowful and troubled, his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he says, and they still didn't get it. Band, you guys can come on up. Our big idea here when we talk about prayer is actually from Luke's gospel. Uh, Luke, in his account of this, he, he said, speaking of how uh, in agony Jesus was, Luke documents that he, he was sweating like drops of blood. Okay? The distress, the pain, the emotional pain that Jesus was in was completely overwhelming. And, and Luke says this, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. If we're modeling our prayer life after Jesus, it says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. If we want to act like Jesus, when we're in agony, when life is hard, when we're facing suffering and facing pain and trouble and trial, we need to be like Jesus. Do what he did and pray more earnestly. Would you guys pray with me now and then we'll sing and I'll come up and apply this. Lord, Jesus, as we reflect on your prayer in the garden and your agony and your suffering, Lord, the distress, the trouble, the sorrow that you were facing, Lord, we can't imagine the pain that you went through. We can't imagine the sorrow that you faced. Lord, how alone you were. The desertion that you faced at the hands of those who were closest to you and those who loved you. Lord, we can't imagine your pain. But we're so grateful, Jesus, that you walked in the will of the Father. That you didn't run away. That you faced the will of God. You bore our sin when you were nailed to that cross. So Lord, when we are in agony, it is our desire, our hearts cry to pray more earnestly. I pray that you would give us the discipline, that you would give us the courage. Help us, Lord, to strengthen our flesh to pray more earnestly when we are most agony. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you guys stand with us? Let's sing. You guys can have a seat. Man. I've been praying all week and really wrestling with this. and God would just give me, like, I don't know how to communicate this. How, how do you communicate the agony that Jesus was experiencing in the garden? I cannot communicate this to you in words. 
And so this week being Holy Week, especially, carve out more time than you normally would. Read this over. Read it in all the Gospels. Sit with it. Meditate on this. Think of what Jesus must have been experiencing. You'll you'll never get it. You'll never fully get it. But you need to get it a little more. And every year, when we get it a little more, it changes you. It changes your heart. It changes your entire life. And so, when it comes to prayer, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. We're modeling our prayer life after Jesus. When I am in agony, I will pray more earnestly. I want you guys to say this with me. We're going we're to get cheesy and do this, okay? So, repeat after me. When I am in agony, I will pray more earnestly. One more time. When I am in agony, I will pray more earnestly. When we do that, we are acting like Jesus. A couple of other things that I think this account is trying to teach us. Go ahead to the next slide. Don't be slothful like the disciples. <laughs> I've been thinking about this. Uh, why, why did they include this event? Why, did, why would you include this? The disciples had the opportunity to write the narrative after this whole scene happened. Okay, Peter was the most likely solution is that Peter was the primary source for the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark became the primary source for the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, okay? So, so Peter, the guy who looks the worst here, who Jesus just told, you're going to deny me, and Peter says, I'll die with you before I deny you, denies him three times, and now he's falling asleep when Jesus just asked him to pray with him for a couple hours. And Jesus is clearly in agony, and, and Peter can't do that. Why, why would he include that? It was just him and the two other guys, James and John. Like after Jesus' resurrection and they're writing this all down, I'm imagining them talking and just being like, were you sleeping? No, I wasn't sleeping. I was really just in intense meditative prayer. My eyes were closed. I was resting, but just really praying hard. So no, <laughs> or just being like, hey guys, like, that was pretty embarrassing back there, right? Jesus is about to go to the cross. They just witnessed that, and they're remembering this, right? And be like, we missed it. We totally blew it. Couldn't even pray with him for an hour because we were sleepy. Our eyes were heavy. That makes us look pretty bad, and we're trying to start this new movement that's going to take off soon. Like, let's just six nine that one. We don't need to include this. But they did. Why? I think in part it's, it's for the early church, for us, to say, don't, don't be like us. Don't do what we did. Be disciplined, is what he's saying. Don't be slothful. <laughs> Go ahead to the next one. It says, watch and stay awake. Go ahead to the next one, Tate. Oh, wait, oh, back, back to, sorry. There we go. Be disciplined. 
We need to be disciplined. Jesus says that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so what we must do is discipline our flesh. We must make time, carve out our schedule. We must be disciplined in our schedule. When it comes to staying awake in prayer, it's it's a challenge. We're busy. We all have stuff going on. It's hard to keep our eyes awake and pray and spend time alone with God. That's where discipline comes in. Throughout the history of the church, these have been called the disciplines or the practices for spiritual formation and growth. If we want to grow, if we want to become more like Jesus, we should do the things that Jesus did, and it requires discipline. It requires saying no to other things that our flesh wants to do to say no to something better that God calls us to. Things like prayer, fasting, things like attending church, things like community life, things like private worship. These are disciplines, and we must discipline our flesh because most of us, our spirit is willing, but our flesh is just weak. Bible reading, all of those things, we must discipline ourselves to do. The strange thing is that these have been practices throughout the history of the church, and it seems like in the church culture today, we're like, nah, I don't need those. Those things sound too much like works. This can be a theological justification. I'm too busy. I have other things to do. And then we wonder why we're not growing spiritually. It will require work. We want to be more formed in our apprenticeship to Jesus. We must work at it. It takes effort. It's a challenge. Salvation is a free gift. Discipleship requires discipline. Dallas Willard, he wrote an entire book on why we should even practice the disciplines. It's called The Spirit of the Disciplines and why they're valuable today. He says this that's been been convicting me. He said, to undertake the disciplines was to take our activities, our lives, seriously, and to suppose that the following of Christ was at least as big a challenge as playing the violin or jogging. Read it again. And to suppose that the following of Christ was at least as big a challenge as playing the violin or jogging. (laughs) Think of your habits. I I was a basketball player. And think of how disciplined I was to be good at basketball. If you've ever played an instrument, the discipline that it requires to get good at an instrument, whatever hobbies, habits, fun things that you like to do, the discipline that it required for you to get good at that, think about that. And what he's saying here is, why don't we apply some of those same disciplines and principles to our life with Christ? If we want to be formed like Christ and be more like Jesus, we need to strive and discipline ourselves to at least value, show that we value that as much. Again, I'm not saying that your salvation depends on this. Salvation is a free gift from God. But if we want to be more like Jesus and become more like him and be spiritually formed like him, it, it will take discipline. And so we must commit to it and we must just do it. And next, it's appropriate to express sorrow at times. (laughs) It's appropriate to express sorrow at times. Jesus was very emotional right now. His disciples noticed it. He said it. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. 
he says. He, this is fascinating when you think about it in the context. Okay, Greek culture, Greco-Roman culture especially, like this was not cool to be an emotional wreck. <laughs> they, they valued like the stoic approach to death. This like resigned to suffering approach. Like I'm going to do this. I'm going to straighten up my back and I'm going to walk through it. You will never know that I am struggling inside. Jesus doesn't do that. He's more like David in the Psalms, where David's like an emotional mess through the Psalms, right? Jesus is emotional. He's expressing his emotions. And what he does is he goes to God in prayer. I, I don't know where I got this, but as a, as a young man, I, I got this like sense, no clue where it came from. Emotions were bad, okay? Emotions are bad. I am not an emotional being. And so what it led me to do was just suppress them. And I think that's even gotten like intertwined with like Christian thought. It was like, no, it's better to be thoughtful, to be stoic. We are not emotional beings. And if you ask people who are even clearly emotional, they'll say, no, I'm not emotional. It's like, no, you, mm. <laughs> you are. Like I am, right? It's not, it's not a bad thing. We're all emotional beings because we don't value it in our culture today. We say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm more intellectual. I'm reasonable is what we value. Jesus was both. We can be both. He expressed his emotions. He laughed. He wept in public. He wept in public. He was sorrowful here to the point of death. And so eventually I came to realize through seminary and some of the personal development classes and stuff that I had to take and started dating uh, my now wife, who was, was a psychology major, Savannah. And uh, <laughs> came to realize, of course, I have emotions. We are all emotional beings. It's a part of who we are. You can either express them in healthy ways or unhealthy ways. That's what it comes down to. And what I was doing was expressing them in unhealthy ways. I was losing it. I was getting angry at silly little things that don't really matter. Shouldn't make me angry. I was exhausted. I would go through phases of what I would call just emotional exhaustion where I couldn't feel. I wasn't feeling like anything. I would call it emotionally flatlining. <laughs> Now, there's a lot there of how to express our emotions properly. But what we see from the life of Jesus is, first thing that we should do is present them to God in prayer. Is go to prayer. When our, when our emotions are swelling up inside of us, we should go to God in prayer. Now, it's not, it's not saying, this text is obviously not saying that it will immediately, like God will immediately take away all of your anxiety and your worries and your fears. That's not what it's saying. It didn't, God, this didn't even happen for Jesus. God said no to Jesus' plea. <laughs> he might take him away. He might not. We don't know. But that should be our first step. It's when our emotions are swelling up inside of us. Fear, worry, anxiety. Take them to God. We should go to God with all of those things in prayer. 
And then next, it's appropriate to ask the Father for our desires. Do you notice this? Jesus asked God to take this cup from him. Jesus, in his fully God, fully human nature, he says, Lord, if there's any way, if there's any way for you to accomplish your will without going through the cross, please. So, it is appropriate for us to ask the Father for our desires. Jesus did that. Things like, if, if you're single, pray for a spouse. If you're sick, pray for healing. If you're lonely, pray for companionship. If you're married, pray for children. If you're impoverished, pray for provision. It is fine to express our desires to God. Keep on praying. Jesus prayed three times and he kept going back. I'm praying the same thing. Keep praying. Keep praying. Jesus has a whole other teaching on prayer that we'll cover later where he says, keep praying. <laughs> keep praying. Almost nag God <laughs> with your desires. But, go ahead to the next one. Must always be followed by submission to the Father's will. Where we say, Lord, here is my heart, here is my desires, here is what I want. But your will be done. So often we tend to think of prayer in this like pagan equation of if I pray enough times, if I use the right words, if I sprinkle in enough faith, and if I haven't sinned recently, if I'm holy enough, God will definitely do what I want. That is so far from Christian prayer. It is unbelievable that it has even filtered into the church. When this is what Jesus went through, Jesus prayed for the cup of God's wrath to be removed from him, which, by the way, if you're kind of like, whoa, what? <laughs> Preached a whole sermon series on this a few years ago on the atonement and what it means. I believe we called it the way of the cross. You can go and look that up. This, year, this week would be a good time to do that. Like, what is happening there? I think one of the best models is that our sin, in God's holiness, God is wrathful against sin, and his wrath isn't like our anger where we go off the hook and whatever. It, it's just. God's wrath is always just. But on the cross, God pours out his wrath on Jesus so that we can go free. He takes that punishment for us. We'll talk more about that on Good Friday if you're concerned. But what we see here is sometimes God says no. And we have to be in submission to the will of the Father. So if we're praying for those good things like healing, if we're praying for those things like provision, if we're praying for children, if we're praying for a spouse, all those good things that we can pray for that our hearts are desiring, sometimes God says no. And our heart and our prayer must always be, God, your will be done. So we can keep praying, but always pray your will be done. And what we see in the life of Jesus is our Savior. He, he doesn't then pray that and then pray, Lord, your will be done, and then do everything in his power to avoid God's will. <laughs> He doesn't run out of Gethsemane. He had a free lane, okay? He could have taken the road out and gotten out of there. 
But he didn't. He stayed and he accepted it and he said, Lord, this is your will. I'm going to walk through this suffering. I'm going to walk through this pain because, God, it is your will for me in my life. Sometimes in the Christian life, God doesn't take away our suffering and our pain. Instead, he walks with us through it. And so our prayer must always be, Lord, your will be done. I invite you to close your eyes. I just want to pray and reflect for just a moment here. I want you to imagine this scene of Jesus praying in the garden. Where does your mind go? Where do you see yourself here? Some of you, you see yourself as the disciples, the group that Jesus left back where you're just sitting. You're waiting. Some of you see, you'll see yourselves as Peter, James, and John. Jesus asks you to pray, but man, your flesh is just too weak and you keep falling asleep. If you see yourself as Judas, especially, you need to repent. Something there where you feel like you have betrayed Jesus. Some of you may see yourself like Jesus right now where you're going through a time of deep suffering and abandonment where you're alone and you're praying and you're begging the Father to remove this cup from you. Pray for God's will to be done.